The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. By grace alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And it is due to the grace that you have shown us, Father, that we gather to worship you this day. It is because of the grace that saw us through the past week that we come and glorify your name. We ascribe glory to your name, as the psalmist says. Bless your churches. She gathers here in this place today. Bless your people. It's hand in hand and arm in arm. We support families. We support those who are living by themselves. Lord, as a part of your family. We support those who, who are homebound and can't even be here today, Lord. Wrap our arms around them and do your work in and through your church as we spend this time on the Lord's Day together. It's a dark world we live in. And only by your work in us can we be salt and light to that world. Read the paper and listen to the news. We see what's happening. We pray, Father, that You would empower your people to be the church, to give our lives, to take up our cross, to follow you. We have missionaries we support that are doing that. We pray, Lord, that you would bless them as they infiltrate this dark world. We desire here to make a difference in our community, Lord. We pray that you would do that through us. We would take over this community for you and for your glory. We provide hope for the hopeless and rest for the weary. That we'd give a cup of cold water to those that are thirsty and provide living water to those that are lost. Give us hearts for the desire to do those things. Lord, we have, we think of the world, we think of the leaders of nations. And we pray that you would intervene where there are tensions. That you would draw in a miraculous way leaders who are not trusting you. We pray for the leaders of our nation, our president, vice president, their families. Pray for our Governor and his family, our mayor and his family, our police chief and fire chief. Lord, all those that you've placed above us, do a work in their lives and their hearts. Open those hearts to your truth. So that they might make godly decisions that affect millions and millions of people. We pray for our church leadership. And give us wisdom, too, in 
this body of believers, we might accomplish the purpose that you've placed us here. And we pray for our membership, Lord. There's some that are that are sick, uh, some in the hospital, and some that are homebound. We pray that you would minister to them today. Be with their caregivers. Be with their family members. Provide healing and strength for them. We have some traveling, too. It's summer and, and some on vacation, and we pray for safety as they travel. Oh, Lord, it's so great to be able to sing your word and pray your word and shout your word from the rooftops. We thank you for your word. We thank you for a church that's focused on your word, uh, penetrating not only our lives, but the lives of those around us. We pray as our pastor uh, preaches your word now that you might empower him. But more importantly, Lord, that you might open us up to the truths that you would have us learn and act upon this day for your glory. Amen. I invite you this morning to open your Bible to Psalm 42. If you were with us back in February on first Wednesday, we did a a brief sketch of Psalm 42. I wanted to come back this morning, and for my own self this week, I wanted to come back to this psalm. And for us together this morning, I wanted us to look once again at what I think is a critical message that the Lord would have for us this morning. A critical message that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to look at closely because the realities that are presented to us in this psalm and the truth that we see there are critical pieces of ammunition for the Christian life that too often we overlook. So this morning we look to Psalm 42. I'll read it to you. If you have your Bible, follow along. Psalm 42. To the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with loud shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall praise Him again. My salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. 
I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation, my God. The Word of the Lord. One of the things that makes the psalm so beautiful is that they touch both the intellect and the emotions. This psalm is one example of that. And as we've been working our way through various psalms, we've seen in the psalms that we've studied together a reflection of a variety of different feelings and emotion. This psalm is a psalm of lament. And we will miss the entire point of the psalm if we don't read that psalm through the lens of a man who is desperate. Of a man who is... Who is crying out desperately in hope that God would somehow rescue him. The words drip off of this man's pen are words filled with hopelessness and a man who is battling and battling and battling for hope. It is the feel that we get from the psalm. It is what's pouring out of the heart of the author. And I suspect as we work our way through it this morning, some of those emotions will ring true of moments and seasons of your own lives. Maybe even this morning as you've come into this place, these thoughts, these feelings, these emotions are what's on your heart. Oh, those around you don't see it. You're here in a crowd, and when we're in a crowd, we, we, we put on our best front, right? When often something else Something altogether different is going on on the inside. The Psalms are a salve for a wounded soul. And we see that this morning. Dan Ortland says, stay in the Psalms. They're in the Bible to give dry and barren human beings something to say to God. And to give them some restored sanity when left to themselves... All they want to do is go back to bed under the covers or get drunk or go kill themselves because the pain of life is so great. In this psalm, what we see is a man who is struggling deeply. We see a man who is battling for hope in the midst of deep, deep pain. And the battle for hope is a battle that all too many in our day know too closely. Too intimately. Just a few weeks ago, I buried a young man. A young man named Chris. Chris was a young man in his mid to late 20s. And he was a man who took his own life. It was the second time I've done that in just a couple of years as a Navy chaplain. Chris was a bright young man. He was a man who was well-liked by all of his peers. He was a high performer in his job. In fact, the highest in his unit. A trainer of others. A man who was bright and cheerful. A man who you'd have to search pretty hard to find somebody who had something negative to say about him. And yet Chris reached a point in his life 
where he saw no hope for living another day. And he pulled out a gun and he took his own life. A key theme that runs through the study of suicide is a theme of hopelessness. Hopelessness. An abiding belief that things will never get better. An abiding belief inside the soul that concedes to a perceived reality that things are bad and they will never change. Hopelessness. Life, at least the good life, is over. Hopelessness is epidemic in our culture. For many people, it's a way of life. They wake up in the morning feeling hopeless, and they trudge through the day just trying to make it, knowing in their minds, or at least in their own perception of it, that things will likely never get better. Some people wrestle with hopelessness because of their past, There's sinful behavior in the past for which they feel a sense of shame and guilt. There's wounds as a result of the sinful acts of other people for which they continue to to bear pain. Things in the past that they can never change. They don't see any way around those things. No hope for overcoming unless something changes and they don't see any way that they could change. There's no hope. Some people wrestle with hopelessness because of what's going on in the present. It's not about the past. It's about what's happening right now. The finances are a mess and they can't see their way out. Their relationships are a mess and they don't have any hope that things are going to get better. Their health is failing. And they don't see any way that it could ever improve. They have problems and pains and griefs that seem overwhelming. Their lives perhaps seem like they have no purpose. They're not going anywhere. And unless something changes, they don't see any hope. Others wrestle with hopelessness because of an anticipated future. They're convinced that their life is not going to get better. They think things like, no one could ever love me. I'm just doomed to failure. I'll never amount to very much. But whether it's things from the past, whether it's the experience of the present, or whether it's fears about an anticipated future, hopelessness runs rampant in the hearts and souls of men and women all around us in our nation. Look around and you'll see it. People discouraged, depressed, beaten down, hopeless. Just a few statistics that sort of bear this out. In the past 15 years, the number of people seeking treatment for depression in the U.S. has doubled. Now, nearly 40 million a year. One in five Americans report that they're depressed or unhappy. And the same report indicates that people have high levels of stress, anxiety, and sadness. For 121 people per day, that hopelessness leads to suicide. 70% of those are white males, and the most vulnerable are middle-aged white men. If you look at studies of prescription medications, you'll find that the most recent studies tell us that one in ten Americans is on some sort of a prescription to treat symptoms of depression. One in six is on some sort of, of psychotropic sort of medication. And as much as we treat with medication and as much as we treat with psychiatrists and psychologists, you know what? The numbers are not going down. 
are going up. Hopelessness is real. And it's all around us. And people are desperate to find hope. And they're looking and reaching out in every direction. Where can a man go when he's feeling hopeless? Where can a woman go when she sees no hope that anything could ever change? When hopelessness and depression roll in like a fog over the soul, what do you do? Well, in today's psalm, we find a man who's in that battle. We find a man who is battling desperately for hope. We see in the psalm a description of his pain. He gives it to us very vividly. And we see his battle plan. We see what he's doing about it. I pray that as we look at these things, God would help us, particularly those who this morning understand this battle all too clearly. Just a couple notes about the psalm before we walk through the the details of it. Psalm 42 Uh, And Psalm 43 are often regarded as one psalm. They show up as two in your Bible, but in some manuscripts they are are show up together uh, without any sort of a different heading on Psalm 43. That leads many to believe it was originally just one psalm. The language, if you read Psalm 43, is quite similar, and it would make an awful lot of sense and flow very well together as one psalm. The theme remains the same between the two. This morning we'll focus on 42, but I'll pull in some verses from 43 just so that you see that uh, comparison. The psalm tells us in its introduction that it's written by the sons of Korah. There's questions about who wrote the psalm. Uh, This could say to the choir master masculine of the song, sons of Korah. It could be translated for the sons of Korah. We don't know for sure. My best take on it is it was written by the sons of Korah or one of the sons of Korah who happened to be worship leaders in the early temple. That's really all you need to know about who they were. They were worship leaders. And it is important as we work our way through this psalm, particularly if the author of this song was, in fact, a worship leader in the temple. That tells us that there's pretty much nobody that's immune to dealing with depression and discouragement and hopelessness, doesn't it? If the worship leader, the one who's responsible for leading God's people in joyous celebration, can be in a pit in his soul battling for hope, anyone can be, right? And that's what we find in this psalm. Let's look first at the psalmist's pain. We see him show it to us all throughout. I'm just going to give it to you in bullet points. Deep pain has brought this man to a deep depression. In verse 6, we see, he says, My soul is cast down within me. This is a man who is low. His soul is at rock bottom. The New American Standard translates this language this, Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. This is a man whose soul is in deep despair. We're not told all of the details about what's going on or what's caused his despair. What we do know is that it's severe and it's lingered for some time. Two important facets of this man's despair. It's severe And it's lingered for a long time. More importantly, he has prayed for it to go away often. And it has not gone away. He has prayed earnestly, God, take away my pain. And God has not taken it away. 
And he is at the point of despair. His soul is down as low as it can go. This deep pain that's brought on a deep depression has been brought on, at least in part, by enemies who are around him. We see that in verse 9. Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? There's somebody on the outside that's coming against him, and that's at least part of the problem in this man's life. There are enemies who are bringing pain into his life. In Psalm 43, 1, he says, Vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and the unjust man, deliver me. This man has enemies. And they seek to destroy him. They are ungodly, deceitful, unjust enemies. And they are inflicting pain on his life. And that's part of his problem. He's got enemies who brought deep pain. But it's not just that they've brought deep pain by what they're doing to him. He and his God are being mocked by these ungodly enemies. It's not just that they're inflicting pain into his life. They're inflicting pain into his life and they're mocking him and they're mocking his God. Verse 3, they say to me all day long, where is your God? Verse, 40, uh, verse 10 of chapter 42. As with deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries, they taunt me while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These ungodly enemies who are bringing deep pain into his life know him to be a godly man. And they're bringing suffering into his life and they're making fun of him. Where's your God now? If he's so real, why isn't he helping you? They know him to be a man of faith, a man who trusts God. And yet he's suffering. And his God seems absent. He hasn't come to help. He hasn't provided any relief. His faith is being mocked. His God is being mocked. And if that isn't bad enough, if it isn't bad enough to have enemies attacking you, if it isn't bad enough to have enemies taunting you while they're attacking you and taunting your God, on the inside he's feeling completely abandoned by God himself. They're saying, where is your God? And on the inside, he's wondering the same thing. Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Psalm 43, verse 2, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? We'll see as the psalm makes... Or it makes its way along that this is a man who has not lost faith. He just feels abandoned at the moment. He hasn't lost his faith. He hasn't abandoned God. He just can't understand why God's allowing the pain to go on. And why he isn't responding. And why he isn't coming to his rescue. He feels like God is distant. He feels like God isn't listening. The feeling of intimacy and closeness that he once had in his life with God has just been obliterated and it's gone. And it seems to him like God has forgotten him. Verse 1 and 2. As the deer pants for flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. What a vivid picture he paints. He paints for us a picture to describe what's going on in his soul in relationship to the Lord. He paints a picture of a deer running for his life from the hunter. He's panting for thirst. He's running at full speed, trying to escape certain death. And he's 
desperate for water, desperate from thirst. He can't stop running or he'll die. But if he doesn't get water soon, he'll die. That's how the psalmist feels. He's running and running and running, hurting and hurting some more, desperate to see God, desperate to feel God's closeness, desperate to see any sign that God has not abandoned him. He's in despair. He feels like God's abandoned him. Verse 4 tells us that his memories make it worse. His memories make it worse. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping the festival. In the midst of his despair, his mind begins to reflect on the good old days, what life used to be like when it was good. He can, re, he can think back and he can remember those good days when he was with God's people worshiping together in corporate worship, when he would sing songs of joy and happiness with the people of God. Those are sweet memories for many people. But not for this man. As he remembers what it was like to worship with God's people. As he remembers what it was like to even lead God's people in joyful worship. As he remembers what it was like to feel close to God. He wonders, will I ever feel that again? Will I ever experience that again? Can you identify with this man at all? Has there ever been a season in your life when you've been low? And you've looked back and you've remembered when days were good, when you felt good, when life was good in the way that you were experiencing it. But at that particular moment, you wonder, I wonder if it will ever be like that again. I wonder if I'll ever wake up feeling good and smiling again. I wonder if if I'll have good experiences with other people again. I wonder if I'll ever be able to go to church on Sunday and gather with God's people and sing joyful songs and it be the reality of what's going on in my heart and not just the words coming off of my lips. That's what this man is thinking. Verse 3 gives us some more color. He says, My tears have been my food day and night. All that tells us is he's sleepless and he's lost his appetite and he's weeping. All of this pain that's brought on to his life, all of this deep despair that he's going through has kept him up at night. He's lost his appetite and all he can do is cry. Tears flow day and night. Oh, he dozes off here and there. But night and day, tears flow from his eyes. He can't even eat. He goes on to tell us some more about how he feels. He feels like he's drowning, verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Another vivid illustration. If we didn't get it from the deer panting of thirst, he paints another picture for us in poetic fashion. He paints the picture of a man who's gone overboard in the ship from a ship in a raging storm. He feels like he's gone overboard. He's holding on to a piece of driftwood, hanging on for dear life. Waves are crashing on him from all sides. At any moment, he could lose his grip and go under. That's how he feels. He 
feels desperate. He's describing here for us his emotional life. What's going on on the inside of him. He's struggling to keep his head above the water. And it's a battle all day long. Do you get the point? He's a man in pain. And it's not minor pain. It's severe pain. Can you identify with him at all? Have you ever tasted depression or despair? Have you ever felt like God was a million miles away from you? Have you ever had others hurt you and mock you? Have you ever been sleepless and lost your appetite? Stayed up all night because of things going on in your life? Have you ever felt like you were about to drown in your sorrows? And that you were just hanging on for dear life? That's how this man feels when he sits down to write this psalm. The worship leader. What's remarkable about this song is he's not just any man. He's a godly man. We see that in the psalm. He's a godly man. He is a righteous man. And that's even more astounding for us, right? Because it makes us stop and say, wait a minute, you mean even godly people, even righteous people, even faithful people sometimes experience stuff like this and feel things like this? You bet they do. You bet they do. One of the most foolish things we do in modern Christianity is present the gospel in our evangelism in such a way that we give people the impression that if they'll just commit their lives to Christ, that everything's going to be fine. And life is going to be a blessed walk in the park all the time. It's not true. It's not true. And this psalm is a good indication of that. We have a godly man who has a true faith in God. But he's in a pit. And he's not sure he's going to make it out. It's been the testimony of godly people throughout the ages who have had similar experiences. The man who is known to us as the Prince of Preachers, a man by the name of Charles Spurgeon. Maybe you've heard of him. Sort of known around preached hundreds and hundreds of sermons to audiences of thousands upon thousands. The collected works of all of his sermons fill 63 volumes as much as Encyclopedia Britannica. Brilliant man. Magnificent preacher. But a man who battled his whole life with discouragement and depression. Who went through extended seasons of feeling just like the author of this psalm. A man who talks about what it's like if you read his letters to go weeks and months in deep, deep despair. Ian Murray, one of his biographers, said approximately one-third of the last 22 years of his ministry was spent out of the tabernacle pulpit either suffering or convalescing or taking precautions against the return of it. It's an awful lot of time away. Because he was in pain. He describes at one point some of the physical pain that's going on. He struggled with gout. Somewhere at the age of 35, he got a severe case of gout and it plagued him the rest of his life. Oftentimes laying him up in bed for weeks at a time. He said it's a great mercy to be able to change sides when laying in the bed. Did you ever lie a week on one side? Did you ever try to turn and find yourself quite helpless? 
Did others lift you and by their kindness reveal to you the miserable fact that they must lift you back again at once into the old position for as bad as it was, it was preferable to any other? He was a man who faced severe criticism. He knew what that was like to have enemies attack him. He said, men cannot say anything worse of me than they've already said. I've been belied from head to foot and misrepresented to the last degree. My good looks are gone and none can damage me much now. Down on my knees have I fallen with a hot sweat rising from under my brow under some fresh slander poured upon me. In an agony of grief, my heart has been well nigh broken. You add to that the fact that his lovely bride, Susanna, after just less than a decade of marriage, when she was 33 years old, became a virtual invalid. Seldom ever heard her husband preach for the next 27 years until he dies. He said one time this, My spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child, and yet I knew not what I wept for. It sounds to me like Charles Spurgeon, a godly man, understood something of the experience of the author of Psalm 42. And I suspect that there are many in this room who also know something of what that feels like. So what do we do? What do you do when the fog rolls in like that and the pain is deep? Well, we see from the psalmist the battle plan. He gives us a battle plan. This man is not a man who sits by idly and feels sorry for himself. He takes action in the midst of his sorrow. And I'll just give you these things as quick bullet points so that you see what he does, because I believe it is a model for what we too can do. The first thing we notice is he runs to God in the midst of his pain, not away from him. He runs to God in the midst of his pain, not away from him. His first reaction is not to run to other people. It's not to run to earthly sorts of resources for help. His first reaction is to run to his God. This whole psalm is a psalm that is a a psalm of lament, but it's a prayer offered to his God. He pulls out his pen and he writes what he's doing inside of his heart. He's crying out to God in the midst of his pain. He's not running away from him. He's not grown embittered toward him. He's not shut the door to his relationship with his God. In fact, he's, he's striving even more deeply in that direction. And I want to suggest to you that this is what truly separates true believers from those who just pretend. On a bunch of different kinds of ground, look at there, we fixed that right off. One of those was rocky soil. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 13. For what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. But when tribulation or persecution arises, immediately he falls away. He's the man who, when it all comes rolling in on his life, he runs away from God, not to him, and shows himself not to be the good soil. The essence of faith is trusting in God when we cannot see what we're trusting in. Hebrews 11.1 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 
The godly man runs to God, even though he can't see God, even though he can't feel God, even though God seems like he's a million miles away, even though he feels abandoned by God, he still runs toward him because he has a firm conviction in his heart that even though he can't see him, he's there. That even though he can't feel him, he's not far away. Even though he's not helping right now, he will one day help. And so he runs, and he runs, and he keeps running. Second thing he does is he pours out his heart in prayer. Verse 4, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. This is a man who's running to the Lord, and he's pouring out his soul before the Lord. This is not a church prayer. This is not a, a neat, orderly, sanitized Happy for everybody else to hear sort of a prayer. This is a man who's before the Lord and all pretenses are gone and he's literally pouring out his soul. You see it as you read through this psalm. You hear it and you feel it. It's raw. It's authentic. He's honest and he's unashamed. Some examples. Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Do you hear him just pouring out his heart to God? He wants to know why God isn't answering. And so he says it to God. He knows God's character. He knows God's faithful and loving and sovereign. What he can't understand is why God isn't showing that right now. And so he pours out his heart. God, why aren't you there? Why have you forgotten me? Why aren't you helping me? Verse 2 When shall I come and appear before God? Another way to translate that is, when will I see your face? God, why are you helping? God, when will I ever see you again? God, when will I ever feel close to you again? This is a man who's just pouring it out right to God. And it reminds us that God isn't intimidated by our honest, heartfelt concerns and questions. In fact, He drives us to Himself in the midst of those things and invites such from us. God, vindicate me. Defend my cause. He pours out his heart. And then most prominently, he does one other thing. He preaches to himself. Verse 5 and verse 11, and then over in Psalm 43, verse 5, it's the same thing. He says the same sermon to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall praise him again. I love this man. He does not approach his pain with sort of a passive acceptance like so many do these days. He doesn't just sit back and say, well, it's, it's my lot. It's who I am. This is now my identity. I'm depressed. I'm in the pit. Life's never going to be better. So I'm just going to own it. And that's who I am now. No sense of that in this man's heart at all. He doesn't just passively accept his depression. He doesn't just passively accept his pain. No. He doesn't sit back and say, there's nothing I can do. Another thing he doesn't do is he doesn't just pray and sit back and do nothing and just wait for a miracle. That's what a lot of people do today. They just pray a prayer and they sit back and say, well, okay, I'm going to wait on God to do something for me here. You hear it phrased, let go and let God? No way. No way. Not this psalmist. This man goes to battle inside himself. He's not sitting back and doing nothing. He's not just accepting passively this particular moment in his life as how it's going to be forever. 
He preaches a sermon to himself. And the content of that sermon is first and foremost a challenge to his emotions. Do you hear that? Why are you cast down? Who is he saying that to? His soul. It's like he's two people. He's saying to himself, what is your problem? What are you doing wallowing in this right now? Self? What reason do you have to feel like this? Have you forgotten God? Have you forgotten who He is? Have you forgotten His promises? Have you forgotten His love? Have you forgotten His character? Why are you so downcast, soul? Where do you get off wallowing in your sorrows? He says to himself. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in one of his writings entitled Spiritual Depression, says this in reflection on this. He says, if you realize that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Just an aside, I sometimes talk to myself and my lips move when I do it. And my wife thinks it's hilarious. What are you, who are you talking to? I don't know. I'm talking to myself. Do that too much today, people think you're a lunatic. But hey, Lord Lloyd-Jones says the problem most people have is that we listen to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves. He says, take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Don't listen to them. Turn on him. Speak to him. Condemn him. Upbraid him. Exhort him. Encourage him. Remind him of what you know. Instead of listening placidly to him and allowing him to drag you down and depress you. For that is what he will always do if you allow him to be in control. We must stand up as this man did and say, why are you cast down? Stop being so. Hope in God. This man preaches to himself. He challenges his emotions and he commands his will to act. I love this. He says to himself, hope in God. What are you wallowing around in that for? Hope in God. Trust in God. This word hope is not like, I hope something's going to happen. It's a settled assurance that something is going to happen. Trust in God. Believe in God. Trust that He's going to make this right. Trust that He's going to pull you out of this nosedive. Trust that He's going to bring you back around again. Hope in Him. His mind speaks to His emotions and His weak weak will. And this is where our theology comes into, into play. When life is good, we store up theology in our hearts so that when suffering comes, we have something to preach to our own souls. And that's what this guy does. One author said it this way, Your success in suffering will be proportional to the depth of your belief system and your choosing to live it out. So he commands his will to act. He says to himself, self, stop wallowing in it. Hope in God. Hope in God. I gave you a handout, or somebody gave you a handout of a song from the 1700s written by Katerina von Schlegel called Be Still My Soul. As Pastor Frank referred so eloquently to my um, singing expertise, I'm not going to for, I, I don't want to build up my pride, so I'm not going to sing it to you this morning. <clears throat> I give you the words, though. And I give you the words because it is one of the most beautiful examples in song of somebody who does exactly what this psalmist says to do. She preaches to her soul. Let me just read the first verse. We don't have time this morning for it all. 
She says, be still, my soul. What is the content of the sermon? Why should her soul be still? Because the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul. Thy best, thy heavenly friend, through thorny ways, leads to a joyful end. What a beautiful sermon to preach to the soul. I give this to you as a gift of four stanzas of a beautiful sermon that one could preach to their soul in the midst of deep pain. That's what the psalmist does. Not only does he command his will to act, but he declares what he doesn't feel. He declares what he doesn't feel. I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I'll do it. He declares something that's true, even though he doesn't feel it at the moment. Do you see that? God hasn't answered my prayer yet, and I don't understand it. I'm asking him why. But I know one thing, even though I don't feel it right now, even though my emotions are telling me everything about the opposite, the truth of the matter is, I'll praise him again one day. And you know what? If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, a relationship with God through Christ, that is true in every circumstance of your life, you will one day again praise him. It will either be in this life or it may be in the next. But that day will come. That sun will rise. That joy will return. And that peace will come back. It's a truth that we can anchor our lives to. Charles Spurgeon, who suffered, said this, Our longest sorrows have a close. And there is a bottom to the profoundest depths of our misery. Our winters shall not frown forever. Summer shall soon smile. It's a man who says, in the midst of it all, I'll praise him again. God will make it come around. Hope in God. <clears throat> Our time is beyond up. <clears throat> what I want you to see here as we wrap this up is the song closes and it has no happy ending. Do you notice that? This psalm doesn't come around and tell us at the end, well, it was all over and God came to my rescue and now I'm feeling much better. No. At the end of the song, the psalmist is still in the pit. He's still in the struggle. He's still asking questions. And he's still battling to hold on to the rope of hope. And it's a reminder to us that God does not make everything go away in a moment. Sometimes the battle endures for a while. Sometimes there isn't a quick and easy and happy ending. This psalmist, we don't know how it turned out for him. What I do believe happened in his life is that a day came when he praised the Lord again. I don't know if it happened on this earth or when he stood before his God. But it came back around for him. It always does. At the beginning, the psalmist was talking about thirsting for God like a deer. And he's talking about being desperate to see God's face again. When we move over to the other side of our Bibles, to the New Testament, 
The New Testament writers tell us if we want to see the face of God, all we must do is look into the face of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, because in looking to Him, we see a perfect reflection of the Father. To see Christ is to see the Father. To know Christ is to know the God the psalmist reaches out to. And the Christ, who is the embodiment of the Father before us, one day stood in a temple in the midst of a feast, and He said this, If anyone's thirsty... If anyone's desperate, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Listen, this morning, I don't know what's going on in your life, but in a group this size, I know. The statistics alone tell us that there are people who are struggling to hold on for hope. That there's somebody who's here this morning that is battling for hope. Oh, you sang the songs this morning, but inside there's a whole different story going on. And you're wondering these same things. Where is God? Why isn't He helping me? You're feeling abandoned by Him. There's pain. There's problems. There's turmoil. There's discouragement. I challenge you this morning. Take on this man's battle plan. Run to God. And you run to Him by running to the Lord Jesus Christ who has offered to you an open invitation. If you're thirsty, if your soul is suffering, come to Me, He says. You run to Him. Drink of Him. Simply meant, entrust your life to Him. Allow Him to become a part of who you are. Receive Him as your Lord and Savior. And He says, out of your inmost being, I'll quench your thirst. I'll quench your thirst. 